Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here, and I just wanted to drop in for a quick second to tell you that this podcast is really gaining popularity, and in order for us to continue growing like this, I'd love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. Plus, I'm always excited to hear feedback and continue to improve our content based on what you want to hear. I know I'm in. Are you? How much has Julius Randle improved this year? Do the Lakers set good enough screens? How well have the Lakers absorbed Walton's offense? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. Today, I am pleased to bring on the show Pete Zayas from Laker Film Room, and a guy that I heard over on our buddy Dave Dufour's podcast uh, last week, talking Lakers. And you know, Pete, what basically what you're doing is a little bit of a version of what I do as far as getting into the film and breaking it down. So, just give us a little bit more overview of what you do over at Laker Film Room. Yeah, I'm basically your version of an obsessed Laker fan, and so I uh, I very much stay focused on the Lakers. Uh, I'll occasionally do a scouting report for what other teams are running, uh, and, but for the most part, I'm I'm very Laker centric. Uh, I you know chart the sets that they run. I um, very much try to give uh, Laker. I try to be the Laker fans' coach, kind of like how you're the basketball world's uh, coach. You know, in terms of a uh, fans. I try to be that uh, that middleman in between what teams are running uh, and give a higher level of understanding of what the fans uh, what the fans enjoy. Great. Well, you know, you, you picked the right team because certainly whenever we do anything Lakers centric, it always uh, does very well uh, to the point where, you know, I don't know if you've seen my Knicks breakdown weekly show, which is a premium show for 99 cents. But we are I am eyeing very strongly uh, doing a Lakers version of that uh, in the near future, maybe sooner than later. So um, I, I, and part of the reason why I chose the Lakers as well is because they're fun. They're, they're fun to watch. Uh, yeah. I went to the Knicks-Lakers game on Sunday. In fact, it was this weird thing where I went to three Lakers games in one week and uh, all, like, invited. It was weird. And um, But the Knicks game, uh, I have to tell you, was really kind of fun, although probably not so much from a Lakers standpoint. Uh, it was frustrating. You know, that was one of their more frustrating games on the defensive end. They switched a ton, and there were just way too many possessions with – Clarkson or Russell on Porzingis or closing out to Porzingis, you know, and or Mozgov trying to hedge against Derrick Rose. Just a lot of uh, uh, a lot of bad combinations in that game. So, yeah, it was a real frustrating one for me. Yeah, I mean, I think the Rose thing was interesting because it kind of like a, a throwback MVP performance from him. And up close, you could see, you know, he is fast with the ball, pushing it up. And I, it felt like it, uh, at least being there, that he did a lot of his damage, maybe half his damage, just sort of like in transition or delayed transition. Uh, which has to be, you know, the big sort of not getting back, seeing the ball and seeing man, all that kind of stuff. Does that, does that look like that from the from the uh, high above? A- absolutely. That was something that, um, you know, Derek Rose in his prime, I, I always thought his ability to stop was really impressive. And that was something that stood out to me in, in early offense uh, transition type of uh, type of play. He, you know, a quick jump stop and he's up with it before, you know, the bigs back on their heels. They have a hard time recovering to that. And a guy like Mozgov, those issues are, uh, are emphasized even more. 
and Rose just picked that apart. So, yeah, that was a vintage Rose performance. Well, let me ask you this because you're staring at all the Lakers footage so much and you have the, the same uh, eye as I do. Uh, you know, I've met Julius Randle. Uh, I remember actually it was in the same um, – I coached – when I was coaching high school, we were in the same tournament as him in, in, when he was a sophomore. And I swear he was the same size as a sophomore as he is now. I mean, it was, he was – if you go somewhere in my Twitter media, there's a picture of him that I took, you know, like surreptitiously, and it was like this guy is going to be everywhere. Nonetheless – very smart guy, very intelligent uh, when you talk to him, but I wonder if he's a, a smart player. Do you feel like he picks up stuff and is sort of you know intelligent as a basketball player? He's, uh, he's probably my biggest source of frustration on the team. That's a really great question. Um, I, you know, I, don't, I don't like playing sports psychologist and getting too deep into their heads necessarily. But there are repeatable mistakes that make your question very much valid. Um, it's it's a mix of two things. There's his uh, effort level on the defensive end is uh, it comes and goes. Uh, he's somebody that I wish they'd use him a little more aggressively on the perimeter because he has good feet for his size. Mm -hmm. um, and I wish they'd hedge a little bit harder with him than they do. Um, a lot of times he's back in the paint or he'll miss a rotation. Um, his screen setting is very frustrating. He'll slip pretty much every screen that he that he goes to set. Um, you know, the first ten games of, of the season were really encouraging for him, and he was a uh, one uh, one boost in his IQ that I saw was in transition. He stopped running people over, and he was looking to kick out to shooters. And his ability to handle the ball and get the ball up court quickly is a real asset that got guys like Young and Russell open shots. That's still happening to some extent. The Lakers obviously just got their backcourt back. But there is a great deal that makes me wonder the same question that you asked. Right. And part of that also deals to the fact that, you know, he's a lefty. And what's interesting about lefties in the NBA uh, who are aggressive is they've oftentimes been able to get left anyway, even though everybody in the building knows they're going left. Lamar Odom never went to his right. James Harden actually will cross back over, but he can kind of get going to the right, and then he'll cross back over. Um, I'm trying to think. There's a couple other guys I know that were just so dominant lefty, uh, but could be effective. So the question then is, is we saw, like, I have a memory in my mind's eye of him going to his right and sort of finishing a little bit last year, or the second half of last year, the last quarter of last year. And I feel like I haven't seen that very much this year. Am I missing that? Is it there? No, it, it's one thing that he's added is that he'll drive to his right and kind of give a little bump with his. He's gotten better at giving his bump with that off arm, and then he'll bring it back to his left hand when he does that. Um, I, he's finished. You know, I could probably count on one hand the amount of right-handed finishes that he's had. I think he's maybe had five to seven somewhere in that uh, in that range. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's that's also a source of frustration. Although for me, that's less frustrating to me than the screen setting and the defensive rotations because those are things that if he wanted to he could be really good at those and they'd be I mean he's a tank he's a like you said he was massive I saw him a little later I think at the Peach Jam um it, one of the big AAU tournaments when he was a senior I think and yeah he was just he was a grown man at that time and he could just set massive screens and he could you know uh rotate he's got great feet on defense but so his ability to go right, you know, it's frustrating, but it's not as frustrating as those things are for me. Fair enough. And speaking of, it's funny, I'm going to do a, a breakdown on the slipping screen epidemic, which is a real problem because 
everybody's doing. Now, Lakers are really guilty. I mean, I love Larry Nance. He's my favorite player. But, man, he will slip those screens more than he sets them, even though every once in a while he will set a good screen. And I don't understand what happened. I mean, part of me thinks it's kind of you're being selfish because it's a way that you can kind of get the ball, right, when you slip early. But what you don't understand is that they don't work unless you set, like, four really good screens in a row, right, and then you slip it. Um, and I don't, have you noticed this as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, a slip screen to me is like a screening version of a counter, right? You have your primary option, which is setting a good solid screen. And then the ability to slip it is your your counter to that so that you keep the defense on the toes and allows you to uh, keep setting those solid screens. You know, it's, it's like baseball. If your changeup is your main pitch, uh, that's you're probably not going to be effective. You're going to want to have a fastball in the repertoire, and the changeup is effective because the the fastball. Sorry to get off uh, to hey. a different sport, coach, uh, but but you know what I mean. So yeah, that's something that I notice. And the screen setting of the Lakers is uh, yeah, it's it's a very poor. Black sets really good screens. Uh, Mozgov sets really good screens, and beyond that, it's the the pickings are pretty slim. Well, if we're talking about slim pickings, one thing that is the opposite of that is Blue Apron. And if you haven't heard about them, this is a service that delivers fresh, high-quality ingredients right to your door with easy-to-follow directions so you can cook fantastic meals in your own kitchen. For less than 10 bucks a person, you're going to impress your wife, husband, significant other, kids, mailman, or anyone else you like to cook for by presenting to them a gorgeous plate filled with creative and savory meals. It doesn't take very long to make them at all. The portions are great. And I can tell you the crispy chicken with mashed potato and spicy collard greens was awesome. And my daughter and I had a great time making shrimp and shiitake dumplings from scratch. You can customize your menus to whatever types of food you like or let Blue Apron surprise you. It would be a perfect gift for the upcoming holiday season, and you get your first three meals free by heading over to blueapron.com slash coachnick. I mean, this is like hitting a three at the buzzer for the win. So feel what it's like to be carried off the court by your teammates by going to blueapron.com slash coachnick and signing up now. You in? So, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm kind of thinking about this right now because, you know, the league has moved a lot towards, you know, icing pick and rolls on the sideline or blue or down. Basically, describe that if you're listening, uh, you know, they will force the ball handler away from the screen down toward the baseline. And then the guy guarding the screener will sink down near the block or whatever to contain. Uh, it's Thibodeau's sort of invention, although the Bulls did it uh, actually. Uh, I actually asked Scotty Pippen about it because I had said, uh, I, I, supposedly, I accidentally, you guys discovered that this was a great way to, to defend it. And he looked at me, he goes, it wasn't an accident. And I was like, okay. Nonetheless, <laughs> um, but the point being that I'm starting to wonder, can you slip uh, an ice defense and somehow destroy it? Um, I mean, I guess you can't slip down because the, you, go, you run right into your man. But I wonder, is there, is there anything there? Do you see anything in your head? Yeah. I mean, you could pop. Yeah, you could. It's it's a way you could pop a little bit quicker. You know, if if the big is sunk down into the lane, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and he's hanging back. Say you've got a guard that you really have to respect the drive against. You can, you know, fake setting that and then slip it out. You know, to the to the wing or so as that guard dribble drags to create the space. Um, but 
in terms of slipping it into the paint, no, that's not going to be particularly effective. Right. That doesn't work. But either way, uh, we I got to do a breakdown. It's just going to be like a montage of uh, guys just like getting kind of close. Maybe they touch them on the shoulder and then they kind of go. And it's it's just uh, it's not yeah. right. It, it need, we need to clean that up. And we need to do it in a hurry because uh, what I think what we're missing a lot of is and what, a lot of times when you see like the Warriors offense, which is basically a sort of a conduit of what the Lakers are doing to some degree, uh, is they won't they won't screen and cut to the hoop sometimes. And I feel like it's that cutting to the basket that just sucks the defense. And, you know, and you have to, it's like you just have to do it. You know, you know you're not going to get the ball. And that, that's the other thing. It's one of those sort of dirty lunch pail things, I guess, in some way. Um, and I, I feel like the, the Lakers also could suffer from that as well, of sort of, you know, not getting enough sort of cutting to the basket. Yeah, for, for sure. And I think one thing that we tend when we talk about screens, we tend to, uh, I think, overemphasize ball screens. But just as important is the ability to set a decent screen on the weak side. And that's something that, you know, uh, the Warriors are consistently a bottom two, bottom three team in the amount of ball screens that they run per year. Mm-hmm. And part of that is because they're getting such great action on the weak side. They're setting they're actually making contact on those screens, whereas with a young team like the Lakers, one of the difficulties is getting those guys to see the value in setting it right there. It may be uh, it, it may be a part of the offense in terms of how the coach has drawn it up. But if the guys aren't making contact and sprinting the screen and getting a wide base, making contact, et cetera, uh, curling tight off of it, you know, it's it's not going to create an open look. And so one of Luke Walton's challenges is getting them to understand the value of that and how that's going to make their lives easier. Uh, absolutely, and like you know, and things were moving along nicely. I think they were what ten and ten at some point, um, and and competing. Um, is this only the records kind of you know gone the other way for a little while? Is this only about injuries? No, it, it's that's a big part of it, um, and I think they've gotten they got a little bit discouraged um, as, as a result of the injuries. The defensive end is what's really hurting them right now. Um, they're either. Uh, I think they're 27th in defensive rating, which jumped up from 30th just a couple days ago. They've been really bad over this losing streak. Um, you know, talked a little bit about the Knicks game where they switched a ton. That is uh, pretty par for the course with them. Uh, I think that they overswitch and uh, get themselves into trouble. Um, just it, it's a confluence of factors. There's young guys who don't tend to be the best on the defensive end, um, a, a bit of discouragement from the injuries. And I, it's probably my biggest gripe with Luke is the, the consistent switching. Um, I'm a big Luke Walton fan. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but that's my biggest gripe is I think they're switching unnecessarily. And I'd like to see more hedge and recover type of uh, situations. Well, you know, the next video I can do after the epidemic of slipping screens is switching. And I think you're right. And I, I we could blame Steve Kerr or, or whoever decided <laughs> to do it this way, because there are, I would say, I don't know, maybe we'll use it, 30% of those are simply, they, they couldn't have to switch. It could have been a little tiny bit of effort and they could stay with their man, kind of sidestep, get in there. But instead, it's just like, boom, we're going to switch. And it just, you know, the NBA teams are good at exploiting that. It might take them a little bit longer. Like the Spurs would be like, as soon as it's there, they're going to get, get the ball to the guy on the mismatch right away. Like they're not going to waste any time. And I feel like the younger teams are the teams that are worse at that see the mismatch but it might take them another six seconds to get it to them. And then what you get into a problem with, I think, is that now the shot clock is running down and they don't have a lot of time to do anything with it. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't understand. Do you like, – how long have you been really looking at the NBA? Do you, can you trace this sort of – the switching thing to any, you know, ground zero? I, I think that – I 
my instinct is to say the introduction of the stretch four is when we start. I think that there may be a parallel between the two with the idea in mind of there are fewer bigs who can exploit uh, a big, small mismatch down low on a consistent basis. Oh. I think, and I think maybe even going further back than that is the 2001 zone defense changes uh, that, that allowed differences on the weak side in terms of what defenses could do, which kind of de-emphasized the post a bit. Um, you know, I, I, like you said, I think it's gone too far in that, in that direction, but I would say that the um, more similarity one through four in the size of players and the skill sets of players, I, th- that's my instinct, although I couldn't say that definitively. But, but what I'm hearing also is what you're saying is it's less about the, the on-ball defenses, that it's more about what they could do to, to help on the weak side with the loosening up of the man-to-man rules. And that's interesting. I, I, I would think that that might be 30% of it, and like maybe 70% is that there are no good post people anymore, really. Um, and that's really fr- fr- frustrating to me. I don't know if I've said this before in a podcast, but like, you know, for instance, like Kevin McHale shot 55% from the field, 56% from the field and um, for his career. Some of those are putbacks, but he ain't shooting. He wasn't shooting from outside. Those are all post-ups pretty much. Mm-hmm. And so what that tells you is that his, I'm sure his points per possession was, you know, 1.1 or 1.2, really good. And meanwhile, now uh, the, the top point, uh, post players' efficiency is probably below one. Mm-hmm. And, the, and, and now the analytics guys are saying, well, it's, it's not a good shot anymore. It shouldn't be, we shouldn't be posting up because it's, it's not uh, efficient. Meanwhile, what I think what we have is, guys, I mean, Blake Griffin, have you, you watched the Clippers games at all? Yeah, yeah. Or actually, you know, all you have to do is follow my Twitter account because I'll vine his, most of his <laughs> post-ups. I, he does things that are so infuriatingly bad, random, horrible, twisting, whatever. And yet he also is usually among the leaders in, in post-up efficiency. So uh, anyway, so I, I would have to imagine that's got to be part of it is that, uh, you know, you get a small on a big, he's just going to take him to the post. And now it's not, people don't do that as much anymore. For sure. And, and again, with the, with the weak side component, you're able to front or three-quarter uh, deny a little more than they used to. Um, yeah, we, we can get certainly into great philosophical uh, conversation regarding the, the post. I, I think that there's a snowball effect, right? I think that the weak side rule changes diminish the effectiveness of the post a bit. And I think as a result of that, post play was taught, began to be taught less. Um, you know, if you look back, even at guys like Olajuwon or Patrick Ewing, they scored more in their rookie year in the NBA than they did in college. And that's where you have that zone versus man-to-man change, right? So when they came into the league, it was the old school's man-to-man. You had to be, for those of, uh, for our, your younger fans, you had to be within arm's length of your man on the weak side, you, uh, or you had to hard double, right? Um, and so I, I think there's some component of that. I also think guys who have had really wonderful footwork, uh, you know, guys like Pau Gasol, you know, I think his, uh, his, um, fundamentals match up well with with guys from bygone eras, but they haven't been able to get up the volume of shots to be, you know, Pau Gasol maybe in the 80s might be a 25 point per, per game guy as opposed to the 20 point per game guy who was at his peak, you know. 
That's yeah. That's actually again very right. It's, it reminds me of like switching from uh, aluminum to wood bats to go back to baseball. Although the opposite, because uh, <laughs> right. you know it's harder to hit with the wood bats. But nonetheless, uh, that's interesting. Yes, it's true. Uh, certainly, yeah. Without the the zone, uh, it, it w- was easier to post up. But certainly, what we've seen with like the Warriors is they just use the post up as a position to facilitate from. Which is a lot like it's exactly how the, the, the triangle worked for the Bulls. I mean, they they had Luke Longley and, and Bill Cartwright and those guys. You know, every once in a while they would do a post move and try and score, but it was always to sort of keep the offense going, draw the attention down there. Um, and I think that that's what's nice about what Kerr is doing, and then sort of Walden as an extension is that they're kind of bringing a lot of those sort of uh, things back. Uh, another video I have to do is on the Knicks. I, they're still running a pure triangle, you know, 10 times a game. In fact, the Lakers game was interesting because during crunch time, they turned to the triangle. They don't mm-hmm. run it the whole game, but when they, when they, when they need a really important st- score, they run the triangle, which sort of doesn't make any sense to me. Was that their corner series? I, I thought I caught some uh, Porzingis running off of some uh, back screen action on the corner yeah, series. Twice. I would I, they did it like twice in a row. It was like, you know, uh, maybe 10 minutes ago in the fourth. I, I mean, this is all sort of, you know, yeah, in the midst sure. of the craziness of watching it live. But uh, it was around, yeah, something like that. And, um, you know, which is just fascinating to me because. Um, you know, here's an offense that everyone's yelling at. They don't. The players don't even seem to like it that much, and yet they trust it enough to run it when you know the more important times of the game. It, it's it's very strange. Um, I, I trust you were watching the Lakers back when they were running the triangle. Is that was that safe to say? Oh, of course, yeah, of course. So, yeah. I mean, like, okay, let's trace your Laker, you know, fandom. Wow, at some what point did you become uh, or watching with with a critical eye, like or things you'd recognize in the court? Uh, we, you know, with a critical eye, it was as young as I could see anything with a critical eye. Really, I was a I was a, a short point guard in high school who made up for it by being slow. And <laughs> I was an, I was an end of the bench guy that never played. And um, you know, I was really fascinated by the X's and O's of the game. And so that was you know that was kind of my uh, indoctrination into that world. So I'd say, uh, gosh, when was that? Mid nineties. I grew my. Uh, Teenage years, we were with those Van Exel, Sabalos, Eddie Jones teams. So, oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, about then is when I started looking at the game that way. And then, okay, well, then let's trace a little bit more of your lineage because you certainly have a really good grasp of what's going on. Where, where, how else did you amass your knowledge? You know, I, I coached in high school um, for a bit. We actually, you and I actually coached in the same league, um, uh, uh, not at the same time, but uh, for a bit in the West Valley League in LA. And, um, wait, and then, did you coach at Cleveland? I, I did. I helped out a buddy of mine. I helped out a buddy of mine at Cleveland. I was an assistant there. So yeah. did we, like, communicate, like, a year ago about this or yeah. something on Twitter? That yeah, bu- it was under a different handle, yeah. Oh, okay. That's really weird. I didn't – okay. So, of course, yeah. yes. I don't think I realized that was you. <laughs> yeah, I'm that guy. I'm that guy, yeah. So, oh, wow. Okay, um, yes. So you coached at uh, Cleveland, which, by the way, is where Nick Young played basketball. I coached against Nick Young while when he was at Cleveland. Uh, and I'm assistant. Fun. So, uh, so you were at Cleveland. Okay, right. Now, was I there in Birmingham at the same time? No, no, no. This was this was last year, and oh. I was an assistant coach for a friend. I was a, I had a head coach gig in LA at a smaller school for about four years, and I coached a little bit of AAU ball. But I'm mostly an obsessed fan that has some you know lower level coaching experience rather than the other way around. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, that's that's exciting. Um, when you were a head coach, you know, what did you run on offense? I I was a, a fan of uh, Vance Wahlberg's dribble drive motion offense. Um, that was you know we used a lot of floor space. Now in the in the the group of kids that I worked with, I of the 
20 or so that I had between JV and varsity, I think five of them had played organized basketball before. So in terms of uh, what you can run, you know, the level of sophistication, like something like horns, we ran horns and that was something that they could, uh, they could get. I tried to, I pressured a lot on defense. I tried to get as few half court set plays as I could because that's when we and everyone else in our league, to be frank, got in trouble. So we tried to uh, <laughs> have a very fast, porous, fast paced game, you know, two, two, one, you know, full court press type stuff. Um, but yeah, you know, Vance Wahlberg, horns, that type of stuff. Oh, that's funny. You know, it's funny. I was uh, shooting something on court uh, a few a month or two ago, and uh, one of my old players brought one of his friends who played at Cleveland when I was coaching, and um, and just reminded me of a hilarious story where we were down. Uh, you know, it was, it was we were home and we were down by three. The game was over with you know ten seconds to go. They get the ball back. And instead of inbound, and they, all I have to do is inbound the ball at half court. We have to foul, whatever we're going to do, right? Um, the dude shoots the ball from like out of bounds, just like just shoots it like <laughs> before the referee kind of collected it and whatever. And the referee had no choice but to call a delay of game, technical uh, foul. Oh wait, uh, that was what it was. No, oh crap! I gotta call my guy. So it was something like that. It was the only way we win is they get the technical foul. We shoot the free throw. Uh, maybe we get the ball back, but it was all the way a full court. We had a, like we shot like a three from seventy five feet to tie it. Whatever it was, it was insane. I think that's what happened. I know we hit a three a three quarter court shot. Did that win it? Or did we win in overtime? I can't remember, but I just that Cleveland will always be a fun. And I remember all the games of Cleveland were were insane like that. And every time I, the coach and I would see each other, we'd be like, please, let's have a regular game where we can right. just not have to have a heart attack. Yeah, those are fun. I had a school where I, I uh, they were in our league, so we played them twice a year. We played them six times, and five of them went to at least overtime, and three of those went to double overtime. And just and the other one was like a you know three-point game in regulation. And we wow. split them like three-three each. And yeah, just, I mean, those are fun. They take, you know, a couple years off of your life eventually. But, uh, you know, it was some beautiful memories. Absolutely. Uh, well, let's keep talking about the Lakers a little bit because um, what are some things that you're seeing that you like about what they're doing offensively that seems to have you know turned this thing around? Even if you want to compare and contrast last year, or just you know what are they getting that's working for them so well? I would say the biggest difference from last year is that they have uh, an early offense scheme. They run uh, they run very intentional lanes and they have intentional actions off of that. Um, you know, you talked about the post up. One of the things they'll do is a early offense post up and then run a split cut off of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that, which is something that a lot of the league does. Um, they uh, a lot of drag screens and step up screens in transition. Um, they've got the wings filling lanes, getting deep corner as soon as possible. Whereas last year it was really just kind of Five guys running up court and where they ended up, they ended up and they would run set plays pretty much every time down last year. Whereas this this year they have early offense principles that guys just kind of react off of like the split cuts, you know, things like yeah. that. Um, and, and so they're running fewer possessions this year that are uh, they're running fewer plays. Um, they actually have a pretty extensive playbook um they they've incorporated a lot of spurs motion they do a lot of uh from the uh the spurs zipper series they've done a lot of action off of that um they still run floppy which they ran last year uh they run with russell out they've run more horns than they did prior to that um let's see what else they they, you know stolen a couple things from golden state uh what what I would say is, uh, I, I said this the other day. They they run about twenty percent of ninety percent of their offense, meaning that they have a. I chart their plays, and 
you know, and obviously as an outsider, I can't say that I know every single play and every single name that they run. But by the actions I've de- identified, it's about 30 different sets that they run. Um, and uh, they don't run many of them with any particular degree of sophistication at this point. Like none of them are very good. Mm-hmm. But I think Walton feels a good degree of job security. And I think he's probably throwing all of the playbook at them or most of it right now with the idea that they can build on all of it over the course of time. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's what I'm seeing from them. Yeah, you know, it's great to hear and to see that as well. That's what's making it fun. It's a little bit faster paced, and you don't have to sit there staring at the bench the whole time to see what the play is, which is what they do in Dallas. And, I, you know, I, I, I respect Carlisle to the nth degree, but, man, I, I would never want to play for a, uh, in a system where I have to constantly be looking back at the bench to call a play. Um, and to me, what, what, what Kerr is doing and what Walton is doing is, is, is the, the essence of the triangle offense is the automatics, right? You get a couple players in certain positions and the ball goes somewhere, then you kind of can break into an action and you all know what's going on. And after enough time of doing it, you can then break into something different out of that, but everyone kind of keeps the mindset because there's this notion of rhythm and movement that you've been working on for so long in detail-oriented um, it doesn't seem to me any, there shouldn't be any other way to play the game, uh, you know, in my mind. It seems like when, and I think it's also very telling, and you probably remember this as well, is when they got rid of Phil the first time and they were in the wilderness for a couple of years uh, with Rudy Tomjanovich, and they demanded, I, I, I felt like the players said they wanted Phil back. They wanted to be able to play in a structure that let them, you know, know where everyone is and moving at the same time, whatever, as opposed to a very pro set traditional Tomjanovich offense. And I think once you play, in it you, you you never want anything else i think that's sort of what the point of it is yeah and i think the young players are experiencing something similar um with uh, one thing that i've noticed from a lot of the quotes is they're taking a lot of responsibility for this losing streak i think i see them uh there's a level of engagement in uh in running the offense that really wasn't there under you know byron scott was more of that tom Janovich type of ilk right where you run set plays you're looking back at the bench and um you know i i'm seeing growth uh, you know that i do attribute to that whole uh, structured environment that you know triangle princeton back in the day uh, all of those uh you know those types of offenses are are able to provide yeah and you see like it's, it's the, the, he calls a play off a timeout or off a stoppage play every time. Right. And that's okay. Every time you have a chance, it's just sort of everyone's you know, not moving for a second. Okay, you'll call a play. And then every time else, that's probably what Luke said to them. He goes, okay, I'm going to give you free reign to, to do these actions. You just got to give me those probably, what, like 12 a game when there's a stoppage. No, it's probably more than 12, but maybe 20 a game, which is probably out of the – let's see. You might have 20 of those in a game right after a whistle or whatever. Then you have 20 transition possessions. And, you, and out of that, you're going to have maybe 60 more that are just sort of regular half court, whatever. So he's probably saying, I'll, I'll give you like 50, 60 possessions. you got to give me the 20. I think that's fair. He, and he probably on defense, it's what, what Phil would do is Phil would say, okay, give me like 12 really good possessions of defense where you deny this one pass and everything else just be professional and plays, you know, whatever you can do. And they win, they win by seven or eight points, right? They would, those 12 possessions would yield three or four points and they would win. Uh, I think it's how you got to do it at the pro level. For, for sure. The, the one uh, caveat I would throw on top of that is that with the current Laker team, telling them to be a professional means something different than it did for the older veteran Laker teams. Like they, these these are kids. Several of them can't legally buy a beer, you know, mm-hmm. and so they're just 
now learning what what does that even mean to be a professional you know that's that's an additional challenge that luke faces that you know phil kind of had built-in professionals on his roster whereas luke doesn't now and to be fair for byron scott uh luke has probably a little bit less of an issue with that this year because they did have a whole year to kind of go through it um but i would think that it would be uh it it would be a, a bad check mark on a coaching um assessment if you have a player that that says <laughs> in public, no less, uh, I have no idea what my coach wants or what I'm supposed to do, right? Right. That, that and I feel like Byron Byron Scott would have said, "Well, I'm not just going to spoon feed him. He's going to have to figure it out, whatever." And so I would argue, I suppose, in some way, I'm not defending Byron Scott by any means, but I guess I'd argue in some respects, like you know, that kind of tough love you want to call it must be helping Luke now. I imagine. Uh, I I think. I think what it's provided, I, I am not a Byron Scott fan, uh, but I will be diplomatic. Uh, I think what it's provided is um, they've gone from an environment that they really disliked to one that they really enjoyed. And so it's kind of like the the hope for the future, even if you don't know what it's going to be, is better than a miserable present. And um, I, I think they were really miserable in the environment that they were in. And so you know, they had something called the Breakfast Club over the course of the summer where all of the young guys would show up at six in the morning and they had pretty much perfect attendance throughout the summer. Uh, you know, they were kind of banging the door down to get to work with the new coach. I, I do think that there is value in, in Byron Scott's approach. I don't think it's completely bereft of that. I also think there's value in having guys like Hibbert and, uh, and an older Kobe, Meta World Peace. That's why he's on the roster this year. I think having guys who are pros, I think that that's also a different level of teaching that by from the veterans on the end of the bench. So while I wouldn't say that it, it's valueless, I think that there's there was a collective sigh of relief from the young guys that they're benefiting from. For sure. And I also think that it's important to understand from any coaching level um, that, you know, you could take the approach of you're supposed to know this stuff, you're supposed to be professional, we expect this of you, da 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 and and uh, versus what Luke has done, which is created an environment where they actually enjoy being doing that, and he'll help them to get where they need to go, as, and then in return, they'll enjoy doing it. And I feel like what we've seen, and I talked about this in the podcast before, but we'll talk about it again, is you know there's a certain um, generation of coaches, Sam Mitchell, Byron Scott, um, Gosh, uh, you know, probably even like D'Antoni's in that same that same realm. But and you could argue that Popovich would be too. Um, whereas, you know, the, the Sam Mitchell thing that I use a lot is he he expressed so much frustration with the young players for not knowing like the basic fundamentals that he would have known coming out of of college. And you know how that works when you work with young players, even, and they can sense the the, the frustration that you're giving them because you don't know something. Um, it just you, you're not going to get through, and it's going to make them resent anything you might want to end up teaching them eventually. Yeah, it, it becomes you know again it becomes a snowball effect where they start to resent you and listen, they tune you out, so you become more frustrated with them, and and that accumulates over the course of a year to where uh, a point where the relationship really becomes irredeemable at that point. And like a real a real big tip for anybody who might be taking over a program anytime. And because I, I made this huge mistake. Well, here's what they don't do. You can learn X's and O's. You can learn communication skills and motivation, all that stuff. Um, but what they need to do is have some sort of book on how to take over a program when someone else leaves. And then there's got to be certain ways. If, if that person left and didn't say anything to anybody, okay, that's what you have to, you know, there's a certain information, which is what happened to me. Um, and then if, if they left, but it was, you know, a smoother transition than something else. But one thing I would say is don't ever like, 
What happened? I had guys, I had seniors in my, on, the, on my first team, and like they didn't really know how to pass. Yeah. And I didn't really say, what's wrong with you? Or why is, what's, you know, why is it your problem? I said, didn't your coach teach you any of this stuff? And I probably said that a few times. And what I didn't appreciate was the coach was popular before he left, leaving, abandoning them. Um, and so me, you know, I'm now, I'm the stepdad who is, right. you know, talking shit about the, the dad. And uh, I wouldn't do that again. I think that would be a safe thing. If I had to do one thing over, I wouldn't have uh, criticized the old coach like that. Uh, but by the way, guess what I was expressing? My frustration for not, them not knowing instead of saying, oh, this is amazing. We're going to show you some really cool stuff that you, this, your whole world is going to open up. I, and that should be the, the, the way you treat all this stuff. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's a difference in youth basketball versus when, you know, when we were growing up. Um, I, I would say that there's no middle class to put it in economic terms and what i mean by that is that your average high school ball player who's not going to play in division one college or not going to make it to the nba i think they um get less basketball development from those you know kindergarten through uh through high school years um it, leading into high school i should say than probably we did at our age but the kids who are who are uh, supreme athletes who are really fantastic athletes, they get identified very early and then they get this just remarkable education of, you know, all of the skills trainers that are out there, all of the resources that are available. So they're able to get just this amazing education, whereas there's not as much in place anymore in the youth basketball realm to just teach your average kid that wants to play high school basketball and use that. So I had many moments very similar to yours, like where either I articulated it or I said in my head, like, wait, why don't you know this? Don't, you know, what, what happened? What, how do you not understand this? Where it's so intuitive to me. And I had to realize that, like, no, they weren't. And that's not their fault. I know. That's, that's the fault of how they were brought through the, the basketball system. Oh, yeah. In fact, I prided myself every year for we always had that one kid that would like trip over the line when he walked in the gym and really couldn't even do anything out there. And then, um, we would really work with him, you know, and, and, and by, by the middle of his like sophomore year, he'd be one of our best players. And guess what? The next guy would walk in the gym who was like, I'm never going to make this team. I can't do it. And I'd say, I'd pull him, I would see something, you know, there was something about him. Like he was playing, he just wanted to play hard. He was eager and whatever. And, and I said, look, see that guy over there? And he's like, yeah, that was you a year and a half ago. And then they'd be like, they wouldn't even believe me. And then we work with them and they would, you know, I, there was nothing better than that because you're right. The guys that are actually really good and have that talent, you know, they're going to get it quickly. They're, you're going to be able to get some really amazing things with them. But uh, there is something about getting in there when they're earnest and when they really want to do it. Uh, I've had the opposite where, you know, I've worked with kids you know, in ninth grade who, uh, you know, they have no jump shot. And I would show them the form and they would shoot one shot. It would fly off the rim and they'd say, see, it doesn't work. Right. Yes. And, I, you know, it would be like, you know, there's only so much time you have to deal with when you when you start off that way. <laughs> and um, but when you get the guys who are eager, who really want to. And also, you know, it's like at the high school level, you can't have five ball stars. It doesn't work. You can't have five. You got You could do it like three, maybe. And then you have the other two guys who are really eager. They play up. They you know, they, they're smart. You can teach them how to play the way you want them to play. I and mean, that's that's the real secret sauce, I think. Yeah, for sure. And it, yeah, it's something that. Uh, you know, on the high school level, you're the the GM to some extent. You're the head coach. You're the trainer. You know, it's it's there's so many different roles that you that you're wearing within that that you have to identify very early on. Like you said, that kid who says, "Oh, well, see, it didn't work." You know, 
your your time as the head coach is also really valuable and every one-on-one moment that you spend with one kid is time that you're not spending with the others right Mm -hmm. and so you have to become uh judicious in in how you spend your time and who you spend your time with obviously you want to you you have the team to take care of but then that one-on-one time that hey let's stay after practice and work on that you know is that going to be two hours that are going to have bear fruit down the line or is it going to be the kid that's you know you know, right. two shots in goes, ah, you know, forget about it. So. Well, spe- speaking of those kind of kids, do you do you have the same kind of uh, uh, love uh, for Larry Nance that I do? <laughs> well, I, I think your love exceeds mine. I, I don't I, I don't think I now don't get me wrong. I love Nance. I, I'm a huge fan. I just I know he has a special place in your heart, coach. Um, but yeah, he sets a he, he's just he's that glue guy, that energy guy. You know, there are a dozen cliches for the type of player that Nance is. He's so smart. He's one of maybe three good passers on the Lakers. Um, You know, he, uh, out of the short roll, um, which is when, you know, when a defense is hard hedging and uh, you don't want your big to roll all the way to the basket. You want him to, you know, get to about the free throw line or so, you know, and to create like a four on three scenario. I think Draymond gets a ton of assists off of this, right? Um, Nance is great in those scenarios, and he's gotten Randall a bunch of easy buckets, Tarek Black a bunch of easy buckets. Um, my biggest complaint with him is that I, like, he's going to realize one of these days how good he is, and uh, and, and you know he's going to become a more aggressive player. That's probably he has at least one what I call record scratch per game where he should totally take that shot, and he's totally capable of taking <laughs> that, but he doesn't take that shot. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, I, I'm a huge Nance fan. I think he's. Uh, a 25 to 30 minute player on a really good team. Yeah, and he does so many little things that do not, and I did a video on this just because I wanted to expose people to the things that you're never going to really notice. Like there's actually, you probably know, there's one play they have, and I haven't seen it run recently where he's on the elbow and I think it's like a horns-ish thing where they throw the ball to the other elbow and he claps really hard like he wants the ball, but it's not uh-huh. really supposed to go to him because then they reverse it and he gets a backdoor cut or something like that, right? And it's yeah, like, this is a back screen for him, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, and it's like he knows that if he could get his man inching up a little bit higher towards him while he's clapping really loud for the ball, then he'll get open for the back door. That kind of stuff, like that when I, when I saw that stuff happening like last year I'm like he's the best player on the team like he would do those things he'd get a deflection and he'd sprint down the court and he'd finish on the on the bat whatever uh, on a break uh, way over the rim and I'm like these are the things that are going to win you games um, you know throughout his career which also begs to the question like how does a guy have an NBA father although we don't know the relationship he had with his father but he has an NBA father and doesn't have a jump shot how is that possible <laughs> that's a great question I hadn't I hadn't pondered that I actually his his form doesn't i mean it's not great but it's not awful and i I feel like he passes up a a ton of shots that he should be taking um i also don't think that he my one little thing complaint i have for him i don't think he has a great feel for popping into the correct space so i think he shoots more contested shots than he needs to whereas the defender's closer to close out on him um that's just a very small observation um but yeah i mean he's a guy where uh, a quality jump shot unlocks 
unlocks a lot of things for him. Yeah, and it, it, it's a, it's not a good form. It's a shot put. It's too low for him. Um, and I, I you know, it, it, I, I'm not against saying that any kind of form could be replicable and he can get consistent with it, but there's just, you know, it's too low. Uh, he doesn't get, um, the kind of, I, I gotta, I gotta look at it more frame by frame, but, um, it's just weird that like, you know, he wouldn't have had a guy come in when he was nine or sure. 10 and really just built a nice jump shot for him. Uh, and it's probably too late. I don't know. I mean, he's, cause he's older as it is anyway. He's probably what, 24? Yeah, yeah. So it's not going to like you know. I don't think he's going to rebuild his his mechanics, but um, but yeah, he, he that's a real issue. Um, and you know, as they get better, he's going to get more opportunity, more shots because they're going to have to be worried about the other players. And um, it's that that could very well be the thing that elevates them is if he can finally do that. Like, and by the way, his old man didn't have a great form on his jump shot, but he can nail it. Um, and that's he needs to get to that point to make them that you know that real that real, uh, you know, competitive team. Yeah, for sure. No, he's, he's a really valuable contributor um, to, to what they can do going forward, but he needs to provide, I, I have a, the greatest respect for the little things for sure, but he needs to provide a couple more of those big things, like the ability to knock down a jumper and, and score in order for him to really solidify his spot in, in the rotation, you know? Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to that. He seems to have a good work ethic, and I suspect he will continue to improve. But you're right about the notion of him believing. Uh, it kind of reminds me of uh, Ronnie Turiaf, who, like, if he ever really had be- figured out how good he could be in that very same manner, like, he was, wasn't sort of mean enough in a way. Like, he wasn't, and I don't want to say selfish enough, but there were times when Turiaf, like, would, do, would give the ball up too easily or whatever when he could have he just dominated sometimes. And uh, maybe Nats will figure that out a little bit better. And, and really, you know, that, that could be the key here. But certainly, it's going to be fun while we go through it. I can tell you that. And, uh, you know, I can't thank enough, uh, Coach, for coming on the show with us and breaking some stuff down. We should, uh, we'll should do, do some more of this. Yeah, I, I had a blast, Coach. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you know what? Maybe we'll even try and do something video-wise where we can, uh, you know, for the YouTube channel, do some sort of uh, Skype call and, and have footage and whatever. We can, that could be fun, too. That'd be awesome, yeah, because, you know, we all see different things when we look at the same thing. So. Absolutely, uh, we do. So, well, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. And uh, oh, let's, let's tell everybody, you know, how they find you. The uh, Lakers film, Laker Film Room is your YouTube channel. Uh, yeah. Where else? Yeah, that, uh, uh, my Twitter, also uh, at Laker Film Room, just started a podcast, Laker Film Room Podcast, and have a website coming out soon. So. Terrific. Well, again, thanks for coming on the show. And um, don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel, we're a conversation. You in? Are you in, Pete? I'm in, Coach. <laughs>